Welcome to Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and today I have a special episode of the podcast for everyone, all about the HBO miniseries, We Own This City. We Own This City tells the true story of a corrupt Baltimore Police Department task force and lays bare the systemic problems with policing in America and the war on drugs. The show explores how the corrupt cops were investigated and charged for their crimes. Today, we're joined by two people I'm very excited to talk to about both the show and the real prosecution at the heart of it all. First, we have Leo Wise, the federal prosecutor who led the case. Welcome to the show, Leo. Thanks for having me. And also, we're joined by Lucas Van Engen, the actor who portrayed Leo in the show. Hi, Lucas. Thanks for being on Pro Se. Hi, thanks so much. It is great to have both of you because as a legal nerd and a TV nerd, this is my dream show getting to talk about both sides of it. Before we get into everything, I do want to give a little disclaimer for our listeners. We're really going to dig into this show. So if you haven't watched We Own the City, turn off Pro Se, turn on your HBO subscription, check it out, and then come back to us because we're going to spoil a bunch of stuff. I'd like to start by talking about the overall prosecution of these corrupt police officers that's at the heart of the show. In 2017, there were eight members of Baltimore's gun trace task force that were indicted on charges like extortion, robbery, racketeering, also some overtime fraud. Um, That's sort of the top line of the charges. But in the show, what's depicted is very troubling and upsetting. I mean, it's stealing from citizens, selling drugs, um, planting evidence. Leo, can you tell us more about what happened in real life and and some examples of of how these crimes manifested? Sure. So, you know, the case started uh, really not where, where it ended up. I mean, that was one of the things that was so unusual about it. Oftentimes, the kind of cases I do, you know, a company collapses and then you figure out what happened, right? Like right. Executives were lying or they were committing insider trading. And so it's usually kind of a, an exercise in figuring out what went wrong. You, you know something went wrong, but kind of what went wrong and, and who was responsible. This case started with a, a suspicion, really, that a, a drug organization, and I don't I do not do drug cases, but um, I was brought in because of this piece of it, had a cop that was feeding it information. And that's why it was able to stay ahead of law enforcement for years. And so we started to pull that thread, um, which is very different from what, you know, I mean, this is, I think, portrayed in the show, but it's very different from where we, where we wound up, because what we discovered in the case took a number of turns. What we discovered uh, was that there was, in fact, a police officer helping this drug organization, but that wasn't, in some ways, in some respects, the worst thing he was doing. Uh, What we discovered, um, really stumbled on, was that he and his partner, and then the circle kept getting bigger and bigger, were robbing people they were stopping, were, when they executed search warrants, stealing money, Um, they were writing false police reports to cover up what they were doing, they were planting evidence, um, uh, they were stealing drugs and selling them back out onto the streets. Um, and, and then ultimately, we discovered they weren't really working uh, when they said they would. And that's the overtime fraud that you referenced. Uh, so the case, you know, grew in an organic way that I've never experienced before. And we didn't know where we were going to wind up at first. And where we wound up at first is not at all where, you know, I would have predicted. Um, and so that was, you know, part of what made the story so interesting, too. Yeah, I mean, it's it really is a lot of startling things that you don't think that cops would be regularly doing. Um, Lucas, when you joined up the, with this project, were you as surprised as the viewers are when they watch it? I mean, it, it's um, 
you know, it's one thing if this was a work of fiction, but it's actually based on real events. So I just saw myself gobsmacked throughout. You know, I, I wish I could say yes. We had just come off the pandemic and um, and the, the atrocities of various police departments were on display. So I can't say I was shocked at the level of it and the detail of it. That, of course, is surprising. I will say in writing in a script, it, it wasn't very shocking. When I saw it back <laughs> visually, right. I and I would watch it with my friends. I'd have to I'd have to I maybe I didn't have to say this, but I kept making myself say this to my friends. It really was that bad. It really <laughs> they're not exaggerating. That really is what went down because I I I, I went through Justin Fenton's um original account of it, which is I, I think the closest account other than talking directly to Leo about it. Uh, so, yeah, that was my reaction to it. Yeah. I mean, you did mention that we have lived through a period where there's been a lot of outcry about police brutality, racial injustice. And uh, the actions of these corrupt cops are actually happening through a time when Freddie Gray died in police custody. For anybody who doesn't remember that, he was a young black man arrested by Baltimore police over his legal possession of a knife. And he died after sustaining injuries during transporting a policeman. The citizens of Baltimore protested at that time as well. And Leo, I'm interested about with that backdrop, did that play into anything um, with how the investigation unfolded or the prosecution of the members of that task force? So it did in one sense. And that was that those the cases against those police officers, and I'm, I, I don't know anything about the underlying merits of those cases, but those cases all were unsuccessful in the sense that none of the police officers that were charged um, were convicted. And in fact, the cases were ultimately dropped. And I had an acute sense that if we were unsuccessful, that that would further disillusion people um, yeah. with the criminal justice system. So I felt, I mean, that, that was sort of a weight on us that... Um, I mean, we had to get, I always felt we had to get it right, that if we were going to take on a case like this, we had to get it right. But the, but Freddie Gray was, was in the backdrop in the sense that um, I think people were questioning whether police could be held accountable. And if we, if we failed, I think that would have further um, reinforced the notion that the police were, could, couldn't be held accountable. And, and I thought that was a very dangerous message to send. Yeah, that's a lot of pressure to sort of prove out through a prosecution that no one is above the law when they do something illegal. Um, I'm very interested in how you knew you had enough evidence to move forward with the charges you did. Because in the show, we see sort of a slow unraveling of learning more and more. And it sounds like that's what happened in real life as well. But how did you know when you'd gotten enough that this would, in fact, lead to some convictions? Yeah, so there was a real tension the whole time. But and on this question, because on the one hand, we knew these were bad police officers. And so the fear was that um, in addition to robbing people, in addition to taking drugs, they could really hurt someone. Um, and, and in fact, if you think about it, I mean, people resist arrest under sort of normal circumstances. And what we were afraid of is if they're robbing someone, there's a there's possibly a much higher likelihood that someone would resist arrest and be hurt or even killed. So on the one hand, we felt an, inten an intense pressure to, to bring the case down is the phrase as soon as we could, because someone could get hurt or killed um, interacting with the police as they committed crimes. But on the other hand, we had to make sure we had enough evidence because if the charges didn't stick, they'd be back out on the street. Um, 
And so the, the two things that really gave us uh, confidence that we could that we could prove the charges were um, the pattern of robberies, that it wasn't an isolated incident, that, that there were, you know, in the end, dozens of people that were robbed under strikingly similar circumstances, but that didn't know one another. Right. I mean, in one instance, you know, two men were robbed on back-to-back days in November of 2015 in the same East Baltimore neighborhood. And they ne- they'd never met one another, but they, you know, they were they were stopped by the defendant was Daniel Herschel. He took the money that was in their pockets. And um, even though they had different amounts of money in their pockets, what he turned in was $216 for one, $218 for the other. So what does that tell you, right? What's the likelihood the two men that have never met have within $2, uh, you know, of the same amount of money? What it told us was that he was he was just putting down something, you know, he was making up how much he was going to submit. So that pattern was really powerful. And then the other thing we had was um, the way we found the robberies w- was, was we looked back over these officers' arrest records, and then we started pulling calls that arrestees made from jail because when someone's arrested Mm. and they go to central booking which is our sort of main local jail they can make phone calls you know multiple phone calls not the sort of one phone call like you hear about in in fiction but the calls are recorded and they're told they're recorded but we can access them and sometimes people say things that incriminate themselves which is kind of remarkable because you know they are told they're being recorded but what we found when we started listening to these calls and this was how we first, as I said, stumbled on the fact that they were robbing people was people were trying to make bail. And so they would say to their wife or their girlfriend or their mother or their friend, hey, did they give you my wallet? I had seven hundred dollars in it. And in particular, if they mentioned a number, it was like having a time machine that would take the jury back to when the person was arrested. And when they had every incentive to tell the truth about how much money they had. Right. Because. You know, one thing I heard from people that have done these kinds of cases, and like I said, I, I didn't do drug cases in my career, was it, or gun cases, that people would sometimes say the gun wasn't mine or the drugs weren't mine. And, and you'd understand why they might say that because they know they're on a, on a recorded line and they're trying to get help from a friend or girlfriend or a family member. And so they want them to believe they're innocent and they want them to believe they're, you know, that, that the, the, dr- the drugs weren't theirs, the gun weren't theirs. But if they're going to make bail, they're going to tell the truth about how much money they have, right? Because that's the goal. So what we heard over and over again was people saying, I had $700 in my wallet, but the police, when they when they talked to the girlfriend, the girlfriend says there was nothing in your wallet or there was $200 in your wallet. So we had, for every victim that we were going to put on the stand, we had a recording from the time when they were arrested, where they talked about how much money they had um, at a moment when it was they had all the incentives in the world to be honest about it. So that combined with the pattern was really what gave me, you know, made me feel like we had enough. Yeah. I mean, that's really interesting to be able to, it's like a puzzle piecing together these these bits of information. One of the other things that stood out to me about building this case, uh, a lot of scenes in the miniseries are when there are um, some of the cops that were doing these bad things started cooperating and coming in and really in some ways spilling their guts to you guys. I mean, it. That I, I just wanted to hear about how real that was, or it was if that was a bit fictionalized, because they, in the show, really just start being so candid about the worst possible things you can imagine for police officers to be doing. Yeah, all that was true. I mean, we um, we arrested the seven members of the task force on March the first, um, and then we waited because none of them wanted to talk at first. Um, none of them talked. They were, you know, they were all. Um, they were taken to individual interview rooms that were wired up for sound and audio. 
I was at the FBI headquarters in in Baltimore, and they had the the audio, they had the rooms on screens, and each one of them refused to talk and 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 asked for a lawyer, and so that was the end of it. Um, within several weeks, their lawyers started to reach out to us and and tell us they wanted to come in and they wanted to cooperate, and so we moved them from a jail where they had all been in Howard County, Maryland. We stashed them in little jails on Maryland's eastern shore and separated them. And then we started kind of riding circuit where myself and my co-counsel, Derek Hines um, and Erica Jensen, the FBI agent who's portrayed in the show, and then John Siraki and some other FBI folks would go to these jails and meet with them. And the way we approached it was to sort of open it up and have them tell us everything, sort of when did they start breaking the law? How did they start doing it? Who did they do it with? And we didn't start with the episodes in our indictment because we wanted to we wanted to know more and we didn't want right. to just we didn't want to just have them tell us uh, what they knew that um, we had them on. And so we did round after round of that. And certain of the cooperators were better at remembering events and remembering details. And as they implicated one another, you know, when Gondo told us something about he and Rayum did because his memory was was very good. Then we'd go back to Ram and and we'd ask him about it. He would he would fill in details that Gondo didn't know. And then we'd go back to Gondo. And so we we did that really from the spring into the summer over and over and over again until we found until we were at a point where we thought we had gotten everything out of them that we were going to get. So I brought up before that one of the charges was overtime fraud. And that stood out to me in part because it's a pretty mundane way to bring down corrupt cops. Um, kind of reminded me of shades of like Al Capone getting caught on tax evasion kind of thing. How do you decide as a prosecutor that that's the kind of charge you're going to include in these indictments? Um, it's not flashy and it's maybe not the um, central thing that people are most worried about, you know, getting justice for. So I was really worried that we might have jurors that would never believe the victims in our case, because the victims in our case sometimes were people who sold drugs. Um, even if they weren't people who sold drugs, they were people who had criminal records or they were in relationships or lived with people who sold drugs. And my worry was there would be jurors because our jury pool draws from the whole state of Maryland, not just from the city of Baltimore. I worried there'd be jurors that just wouldn't listen to people like that. They just wouldn't believe them. And so the overtime fraud was really a set of charges that didn't depend on the jurors finding any of our victims credible mm. because all the police officers lived outside the city. Baltimore doesn't have a residency requirement for police officers. So they all lived outside the city and they all had their phones with them all the time, which is a, essentially a tracking device. So we knew where they were. And then the city used paper overtime slips. So each time they put in for overtime, they themselves had to say they had worked their regular shift. They had to describe what they were doing to get the overtime. And then they had to sign a certification that said what they were saying was true. So each time they did that, it was it was really a lie. And so if they took the stand, we could show that to the jurors. And then again, even if they didn't take the stand, the evidence that they weren't working was you compare those overtime slips that say, you know, I'm in the Northwest doing surveillance to their phone that shows them in Myrtle Beach on vacation. And that's not that doesn't come down to believing somebody you know, that you think sells drugs or did sell drugs or admits they sold drugs and therefore shouldn't be believed. So that was it was really another path to conviction um, with a jury in mind that that may have members that just could never get beyond the, the backgrounds that some of our victims were going to present. Yeah, I love hearing about that strategy. It's so interesting about the ways to go about a big 
case like this. Um, Lucas, I haven't forgotten that you're here. Um, <laughs> I am very interested about this project itself because it really has so many heavyweights behind it. It's, uh, I think you mentioned before, it's based on a book written by a former Baltimore Sun reporter. The show is co-created by the masterminds behind the classic television show, The Wire. That puts a lot of pressure on joining a production like this because you know it's going to have a lot of eyeballs on it, and rightfully so. And also we've talked about how this is just such intense and heavy material because it's all true. So tell me about how you approached this role. You're portraying a meticulous lawyer, so did your inner nerd come out? Um, how, what was it like for you? Um, thanks for that. I, I actually want to double go back a little bit to something that came up, if that's all right. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, because we mentioned the Freddie Gray protests and um, and that that gets captured and we own the city. And uh, while I was on set, they were, um, you know, all the PAs and, and, uh, and a lot of the team were working to get to get the city um, extras together to film that scene. And it was a huge undertaking. And when I watched it, I got really choked up uh, because um, as an actor, you know, I'm, I, I'm conscious of background and extra and I'll watch them in movies to see how they're acting and stuff. And sometimes it's kind of funny. Sometimes like, Oh, good, good job, man. Good job. <laughs> you know. Um, and in this one, um, most, if not all of the people that were there were Baltimore locals who had lived through this mm. and they had a chance to tell their story uh, to a national audience on camera. And I, I get I, I'm getting emotional right now, just watching their eyes as they um, relive that experience for us. Um, it's like the purest form of what I do and why I do it. Um, it was really moving to see that and kudos to um David Simon, George Pelicanos, and, and Ronaldo Marcus Green for capturing that. And um, yeah, it yeah. really brought that to life in a way that I think was, like you said, very moving. Yeah. And um, another thing, I just took a note because I didn't hear Leo say this, and this is what really made it pop for me. And I'll have my fr you're you're all lawyers, you probably know this stuff, but my friends will listen to this, and they don't. Uh, Leo talked about like, about why the. Um, why the the police officers were saying so much and at least the way leo explained it to me and and the way it is in the script is that this is a proffer session where if what they say in the room cannot be used against them and so there's incentive to spill everything and then leo was able to then find the overlaps where oh well you said this about this person now this person said this about you i can't use what you said against you but i can use what this guy said against you do i have that right leo you do you have it exactly right yeah awesome that's exactly right yeah yeah so that's the part that really made it clear for me um when i when i hung out with leo during the shoot yeah, um, it, it sounds to me a lot. Um, I think, you know, whether you're a lawyer or not, most people contextualize that with going after like the mafia, basically, <laughs> like you, you get the little guy, get him to start talking, maybe you get somebody else to start talking and use this against one another and kind of move your way up the chain. Yeah. And in answer to your question, the pressure of filming this. Um, yeah, you know, it's really for me, it was the pressure of of booking a job this big with with the the names that were involved um, and just showing up and doing my best. Um, and and mostly that involved really learning difficult lines. There were times in the middle of it where I was like, I swear we did this whole script already. Did we we didn't do this scene because <laughs> it all just started like running together in my head. Um, that was yeah, it's like hardest. you had a crash course, like a mini law school. 
Yeah, totally. That was the hardest part for me. And, and just that kind of focus it took to to make those lines sound like they were coming from me in a natural way. Uh, did all most of the work for me. I did a lot of script work with my my own acting coach. And um, one thing Leo talked about, we found in the script, which Leo and I talked about when we had dinner together. But my acting coach and I were like, "Well, what's the thing that can guide me through this this script and kind of be my guiding light?" And there was a line in there like, "Keep your eye on the prize," or "What's the prize?" And um, so that became my kind of like guiding light in each scene. Like, "What's the prize here?" or um, who's the prize or keep your eye on the prize. And as Leo said, from scene to scene, that would change, which was gave it a certain kind of excitement. Um, I but- love that as a concept because even lawyers listening to this show right now that are in the middle of, you know, complicated trials of their own, maybe even not criminal, but just things like every meeting and task has something like that in the legal world where you really have to keep the focus on what you're trying to get out of it. Yeah. And then there wasn't, I didn't have personal trauma around these things, but a lot of people on set did. Mm-hmm. And I will say, uh, Nina Noble, kudos to the exec, uh, the producer on set and the team that they actually set it up in a way that um, gave airtime for people who were having trauma. And they had a, a whole system in place uh, for people to work through that as they perform these roles. So um, it was, it was a really, uh, how every set should work, especially on on cases like this. It was, a, it was a cool thing to be a part of. Yeah, I could see how you would need that kind of support with something that's true and also ongoing, which, which also sort of leads me into my next question for you, Leo, which is around how the, the show didn't really shy away from pointing to giant problems. So the overall impact of the war on drugs, a justice system that can sometimes incentivize bad tactics from the police. And I know you've done a lot of work on this around police corruption. And I'm just curious about how you think things are at this time in America. Um, Have we made progress? Is this too big a problem for just prosecutors to tackle, you know, one by one with corrupt police? What what are your feelings on that? So, I mean, I think, you know, I think one of the remarkable things about the story is that um, the criminal justice system did work, right? These officers were held accountable. They were you know, they knew they knew how to, to stay ahead of us. They knew all the techniques we were going to use. It was, in that sense, incredibly hard to build the case against them. Um, uh, but but it worked, and the jury did believe the the victims that we presented. Um, and uh, and so, in a sense, I think it's it's a very hopeful. The the case itself is a very hopeful tale. Um, I think there are enormous problems in policing. Uh, I think that they are um, incredibly complex and, um, you know, criminal prosecutions are only a small part of of how you get policing right. Uh, But I think, you know, from my perspective, again, the case was an example of how against enormous odds, the system can work and can do justice for people uh, in places that don't often see a lot of justice or particularly you know, one, one of the ways they got away with it and thought they would get away with it is because they thought who would believe the people that they were right. robbing, right? Who would believe drug dealers or people that have criminal records or people that live in or around um, people who sell drugs? And that gave them, you know, the power to keep going. And, you know, what we were able to do was show that pe- those people deserve to be believed. And the truth was the truth. Uh, not, And it doesn't come from where you live or wh- what you look like. Um, the truth is the truth. And, and, and that's, that's the kind of 
the magic of our system that a, that a jury of people can reach that conclusion. I mean, we spent, you know, we spent over a year putting the case together. We put it on in two weeks and the jury got to the same place we did, which was, you know, they found the truth. Yeah, I thought it was really clever the way the show um, had many scenes that depicted the training of officers, you know, whether it was speeches from a senior officer to the more junior staff or just sort of the on the job, you know, you're the new guy in the partnership in the police patrol car. Um, And it really showed how even good intentioned cops in a bad environment can fall into things and a sort of slippery slope kind of idea. So it seems to me that that kind of stuff is what we're talking about, about bigger systemic problems that just prosecuting can't address on its own. Yeah. And it was something I'd encountered. I mean, I, I started my career doing um, corporate and securities fraud cases, and I was on the Enron task force as my first criminal case. And, you know, what you see in, in those kinds of cases is how much culture matters in an organization, um, how much leadership matters. And in that regard, the police department was no different from, you know, a company like Enron where fraud had metastasized. You know, we, we had 31 guilty pleas in that case before we went to trial against the two former CEOs. Kenley and Jeff Skilling. And so there was, it was all over the company. It wasn't being directed from any one place. Um, and so now that I've done, you know, we've, we've, I just had the 15th sentencing of a police officer I've done on these cases yesterday. Um, we've indicted, and we've got, we've indicted several other officers. Uh, so we're almost at 20, but it, it reminds me very much of what I had experienced, you know, doing corporate and securities fraud cases at, at big publicly traded companies. Yeah, that's really interesting, the overlaps there. Could I ask Leo a question? Sure. Um, so I think David Simon's thesis for this would be that if you could point back to one thing that started, uh, that really can be pointed to for corruption in police departments, um, aside from pre-existing racism, is um, the war on drugs and the implications of that uh, that line just the the linguistics of it and and as a as a methodology in this country so i'd love i'd love to hear what you think about that sure so you know i think that um one of the reasons that i mean look they were stealing money principally they were also stealing drugs and they were able to do it because they weren't being properly supervised so you're gonna have even if even if the drug economy wasn't generating these funds, you're going to have other illicit behavior that's generating these funds. And so you have to you have to have a way in which to make sure that when officers pull open a drawer, you know, in a house they're doing a search at, whether it's because that the owner of the house sells drugs or they or they sell illegal weapons or they engage in, you know, sex trafficking or whatever it is, that there's controls in place to make sure that they don't steal part of the money, which is what we saw happening over and over again. Or when they go up to someone on the street um, and they arrest them, there are, you know, I mean, in some ways you always have to rely on the integrity of the officer, but that there are controls in place to make sure that when they go into someone's pockets looking for a gun um, or looking for some other, you know, uh, a weapon or some evidence of crime that they don't, you know, they don't steal their paycheck. So, um, so I think these problems that, that, you know, that this case certainly explored are going to be present in any police department, in any setting, in response to any potential crime. And so we're always going to have to be vigilant and we're always going to have to hold the police accountable, even if we could address, I think, some of the, you know, some of the questions that David Simon raises about the larger war on drugs and its effect. I mean, I think it, you know, I, I think the 
the th- his thesis, as I understand it, is that it it amplifies all of mm. these problems, you know, to to uh, kind of shocking levels. Um, and I think, you know, I, I think that's what the show really vividly portrays. And that's the argument the show made, which I thought it did very powerfully. But um, even absent the, the effects of the war on drugs, um, you know, the kinds of challenges that we saw in the police department are going to be present and, and there needs to be accountability in place to deal with it. So I do have one sort of big final question for really both of you. What do you want people to take away from this show and the real life events that led to it? I'm interested in your take on its portrayal of the Baltimore police, but police more generally as well. What, what are the big takeaways for you? I think it's, it's a phrase you used and I've, I've used it in other, uh, in other cases. And that is that no one's above the law. And um, one of the things that, that was a little different about my background, I hadn't done cases where I worked with local police officers. I had done, my whole career had been in financial crimes and corruption cases where our defendants are always authority figures. They're always people that have power and have the trust of the community. They've been successful. They've been celebrated, um, but they chose to break the law. And so I approached this with a, with a skepticism, the same skepticism I really bring to any case, um, and and with a view that that no one is above the law. And I think that that's what the society demands of police and other authority figures. And that's what, you know, people in the, in the role I'm in um, have a really important job to deliver. What, what about you, Lucas? What, what did you take away from being a part of this production and, and what you want people to glean from it as they watch? Uh, for me, it opened my mind further to the level of corruption that exists in, in police departments um, and how low people will go. Um, and that's always disappointing to find out. And um, but what I hope it will do for the viewers, I hope that because I've encountered people in my life who, who really, I, I know people in my life who kind of approach politics like this, like the civil acts right worked. We're okay. Like we're pretty much living in an equal opportunity world, and there's some outlier racists, but for the most part, we're okay. And I hope this story, along with other stories, can at least crack the door open to to start really questioning that and and seeing if that's true or if we have a really long way to go, which I believe we do. Well, if anybody's made it all the way to the end of this segment and hasn't already seen the show, I really encourage them to do it. In addition to it raising some fascinating issues, it's also just a real fun watch in terms of six episodes, really compelling. So tune into HBO, everybody, and check that out. And I just want to thank you both for being with me today. I really appreciated the chat. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening today. And just a quick programming note, we will return to our normal format next week. But before I go, I'd like to thank several people for making today's show possible, including our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, and our guests this week, Leo Wise and Lucas Van Engen. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, do drop us a written review wherever you're listening. And come on over to our website to learn more about the show. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.